Hello and welcome. You found the Social Work Podcast. My name is Jonathan Singer, and I'll be your host as we explore all things social work. Hey there, podcast listeners. Jonathan here. Thanks for coming back for part two of my discussion with Alan Barsky about the 2018 NASW Code of Ethics. In part one, Alan and I talked about the history of the Code of Ethics and section 1.03i, which is electronic searches. In today's episode, part two, we talk about section 1.05, cultural competence, and whether online communities fall under the ethical standard of cultural competence. Now, Alan mentions the NASW 2016 Standards and Indicators for Cultural Competence. And you can find that on the NASW website. And we'll also put the link on the Social Work Podcast website. Well, right after he mentions that, I mentioned the 2017 Standards for Technology and Social Work Practice, which you can also find on the NASW website. I mentioned that there was some feedback that both the tech standards and the 2018 Code of Ethics painted technology as problematic. Now, spoiler alert, Alan disagreed. You be the judge. We went on to talk about Section 1.04e, knowing the laws in your jurisdiction and the ones where your clients live and how that affects practicing across state lines with or without technology. And now, without further ado, on to episode 114 of the Social Work Podcast, the 2018 NASW Code of Ethics, Part 2, an interview with Alan Barsky. I want to move on to section 1.05, Cultural Awareness and Social Diversity. Section B says social workers should have a knowledge base of their client's culture and be able to demonstrate competence in provision of services that are sensitive to clients' cultures and to differences among people and cultural groups. And this sounds like something that social workers have been doing for a long time. Um, And so it's not necessarily a new idea, but people have talked about participation in online communities as being cultures, as having a different set of values and, 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 and rules and expectations and norms. Was there any discussion in the revision about whether or not the code of ethics considers online communities or technology-mediated relationships as being clients' cultures? So in terms of what the internal discussions were, uh, we were actually asked to sign a, uh, an agreement that we would not share uh, what those discussions were. So those are to be uh, private confidential discussions. What may be helpful for people is to look at uh, there were practice standards, uh, I think in 2016, on cultural competence. And I'm not sure if they brought up the issue about whether or not a uh, community that is online has its own culture. 
But if you look at, you know, just sort of the definition of culture, it's a, a group that has its own uh, language, norms, values, etc. So certainly various groups that are uh, communicating online have different types of cultures, what's okay and what's not okay, and uh, many, you know, subcultures within. So you couldn't say everybody on Facebook is the same culture. There may be some attributes that are uh familiar or common across many Facebook users, but there's so many subgroups within Facebook as well. So, you know, to me personally, I would say that it's, uh, uh, you could consider um, various online groups and various people who are connected through different types of digital uh, communities. It doesn't even have to be social networking, but there may be some cultural aspects. I, I should clarify that even though I was on the task force, uh, I'm not a spokesperson for NASW. I'm not uh, hired by them. I haven't been asked to speak on their behalf. Right, which is a good good clarifier, and I appreciate that. Um, Did you want to go back to 1.05D uh, since we were talking about uh, culture issues? Because D is that's the section that's amended. Yes, yeah, so would be would be happy to. So one of the things that uh, you know social workers have always been good at is doing a uh, broad psychosocial assessment, looking at all different areas of the person's life, uh, biologically, uh, psychologically, socially, spiritually. We haven't always been good at uh, assessing people in terms of their um, relationships with technology. And so although this is a section on uh, cultural awareness, competence, and uh, technology, part of it is really just uh, awareness that when you're uh, doing uh, work with people in terms of using technology, you should be aware of cultural, environmental, economic um, ability and linguistic factors that affect the use of these services. So for example, there's a number of people who are using text-based services and you need to have uh, people who have a certain level of uh, not just uh, fluency in English or whatever language you're working in, but also uh, a level of literacy to be able to use that technology. Um, there's a lot of economic factors in terms of uh, just access to different types of services. I know of entire programs that have stopped providing in-person services and everything is through technology. That's assuming that everybody has uh, tablets or computers or they've got uh, plans that uh, allow them you know large amounts of data and things like that so we have to be aware of access issues for people on uh, economic uh, issues and also in terms of uh, ability issues now sometimes when you look at the code or you look at standards it seems to focus on you know the the negatives but here it really talks about assessing all of these different factors and it may actually be that using technology uh, is a great way to engage people with different abilities and different uh, economic uh, abilities as well. So in terms of economics, uh, the person who is working a nine to five job and can't afford to take off a couple of hours in the middle of the day might be able to you know, connect with a social worker during lunch uh, via technology. And so it's actually a more accessible means for the person as opposed to a less accessible means. Well, you know, I appreciate you clarifying sort of the tone of the code of ethics with regards to uh, technology, because there are places in there where it sounds like the code is saying 
technology is bad. Could, could you please point out a section where it actually says technology is bad? I think, you know, <laughs> people came up with that critique and we tried to change any of that language because I think it's not even a choice between with technology or not with technology anymore because there's often a blending. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we heard very loudly and tried to make sure that uh, there wasn't a, a statement that uh, said, you know, technology was uh, riskier or technology was second rate. In fact, in many cases, uh, technology can be better. We do actually add language where people say, well, why do you have to add that language about technology? Because, uh, you know, shouldn't we know it anyhow? And one of the reasons that we added that language is because even though the existing standard should have covered the issue, we were finding a lot of problems with it. So for example, in terms of use of uh, respectful language, uh, there's a number of places where, you know, we're talking about sexual relations or sexual harassment or uh, respectful language. And we made sure that we clarified that it's not just orally or in writing, but it could also be uh, digital communications, which could include sending memes or pictures or uh, electronic videos. And people could say, well, why do you really need that? Um, we've had a number of incidents, even on the NESW website, where people have been um, sending very uh, vitriolic language and very insulting language to people that you know, I don't think they would have said if we were t- having these conversations in person. So we did it to try to highlight it's uh, really that it's a, an educational tool. Uh, it's not changing the nature of the obligations, but just being very clear about uh, these types of standards, they apply whether it's with technology or without technology. So you, you alluded to feedback that you received about uh, specifically the technology practice standards. Is that correct? Yeah, we got uh, feedback uh, to uh, both the technology standards and also to the code of ethics. Both, oh, okay. both were set up for, uh, for feedback from people. And then also I've, I've been doing a number of uh, presentations around the country, including some uh, social work and social work education conferences. And people bring up these uh, uh, concerns. So it's great that you can have these uh, different dialogues with people. Yes, that's 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 a very strengths-based um, <laughs> way of thinking about it. But you asked about uh, sections where it sounded like there is an implication that technology was bad, and that's kind of very absolute language. But I want to I want to point one out that to me uh, speaks to that, and I would love I would love to hear what you have to say. So under section one point oh three, informed consent under uh, letter G, the last sentence says, if clients do not wish to use services provided through technology, social workers should help them identify alternate methods of service. And in my mind, a more tech-friendly statement would have included a corollary, which is, and if clients do not wish to use services that are traditionally provided and would prefer technology, that social workers should help them identify those technology-mediated services. So that's what I mean by saying there are places where there is a, uh, a tone that I'm reading, and I, I will admit my bias, that has places where it sounds like technology is the less favorable option. And so you should always be able to find them the better option, which would be the traditional services. So one of the things that we're trying to do with the Code of Ethics is to educate people and there's uh, social workers with various levels of uh, familiarity and comfort with technology. And so, 
if you look at the entirety of uh, informed consent, it does talk about, uh, you know, just in general, we should inform clients about the purposes of uh, services, risks, etc. And clients have a right to, um, you know, ask questions and either consent to or uh, reject different types of services. So they could reject in-person services. Uh, I think you're right that we could have uh, worded that section differently, but what was uh, decided was to leave the rest of the uh, leave the rest of the standard intact and have a particular uh, paragraph to just educate people about the use of technology. So yes, it could have uh, it could have talked about uh, both uh, directions. Um, I'm not sure that it's saying that uh, don't use uh, technology because it's worse. I think it's just saying if you're using technology, make sure you assess people's ability to use it. And we do similar for whether it's uh, uh, technology assisted or not technology assisted in earlier parts. And I, I would actually yes. think that. Uh, you know, 10, 20 years from now, some of these sections on technology uh, could probably take be taken out uh, completely because people will have, you know, found ways to make use of technology in a way that, uh, you know, doesn't really separate out uh, in-person versus technology. So for a lot of people, it still feels like it's uh, something new or different. But as, as we move along, it's probably going to, uh, we're, we're probably going to incorporate things in a, in a way that's more fluid. Which I think is also a nice thing to keep in mind, and I appreciate you pointing out that, which is that the NASW Code of Ethics is a responsive document, right? It responds to things that change in society and the ways that the profession changed. And so I, I think you're right. I think it would it would make sense to think that in 20 years from now, some of the, the things that are new will be just integrated into society. I, I don't know exactly what those will be, but it's nice to know that that's something that we can think forward to. Um, we're, we're both professors. So I don't know if you've ever looked at, uh, you know, some of your older syllabi and in older syllabi, you, you know, sort of explain to people how to log on to, uh, you know, Blackboard or WebCT or whatever the online uh, type of service was. We had to provide a lot more <laughs> information to students for how to yes. use technology. And, and now there's just sort of an assumption that people know how to log on and do all of the basics. And now it's uh, training people to do something at uh, higher levels or, or, or newer types of uh, technology. Yes. No, that's a great analogy. Absolutely true. Um, and in fact, I found one of the trainings that I did back at my old agency um, in 1997, and I actually defined what a mouse was. And then probably had to put a picture of it, too. I did. Uh, I know that there are some other things in the Code of Ethics that have changed around confidentiality and, and boundary issues and professional responsibility. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk about some of those, particularly some that will change the way that social workers will think about practice or maybe practice. Could you address some of those changes? Okay, so one change, it's only a couple of words, but they're very critical words. 1.07c when we're talking about confidentiality. So the first part of it is a statement that we're to keep uh, information confidential except for compelling professional reasons. And then it gives some um, possible exceptions to those. And so the primary exception in the second sentence, uh, keeping information confidential does not apply when disclosure is necessary to prevent serious foreseeable imminent harm to a client or others. Now, it used to be serious, foreseeable, and imminent harm to the client or another identifiable person. Uh, 
We've taken out the term identifiable and just put it in terms of others or other people um, because there are a number of states now that actually have in their laws um, <clears throat> duties to report or duties to protect whether or not the other people are identifiable. So if you look sort of historically, you know, people will look back to the mid-1970s with the Tarasov cases. Those were the first times ever that the court started to recognize that confidentiality is not absolute and that there are occasions when we have duties to third parties, people who aren't in the social work client relationship, when their life or their serious uh, uh, risk to their life or their body is at risk. So that was the first time back in the 1970s. And I think the language was trying to be fairly restrictive, saying that, well, if somebody threatens a specific person, then that du duty could be triggered. But if it's not an identifiable person, then you know what can we do about it and why should we uh, limit confidentiality? So there was a lot of concern that if we had too many social workers or too many mental health professionals uh, breaching people's confidentiality in order to protect um, other people, then clients wouldn't come to us. They wouldn't trust us. They wouldn't open up with us. We wouldn't be able to build a positive working relationship with them. Now, I still think it's important that you know social workers limit the um, types of disclosures uh, and when that uh, duty to uh, protect or duty to uh, report is triggered. But we've, you know, had a number of concerns in recent years where, you know, clients or uh, others have made uh, threats or it's been known that uh, they're posing risks to others, but it isn't necessarily an identifiable other person. So if you were to work with somebody who was, uh, you know, being radicalized by ISIS or by another uh, terrorist organization and you knew that there was a threat to a school, to a public gathering, etc., but you didn't know which school or which specific people at that public gathering would be uh, targeted under the old framing of the standard, there wouldn't be an exception to confidentiality. So here you need to use your discretion in terms of what triggers that duty to report or duty to protect and what can you do in order to protect and at the same time minimize the breach of confidentiality. So just because there is uh, the risk to another person of uh, serious imminent harm, you may not need to disclose to others. If you are able to uh, use effective uh, crisis management counseling, if you are able to develop a safety plan, if you are able to get the client's permission to share information with the potential victim, then you are not breaching confidentiality. But if the client is uh, posing a risk to others and working with the client in a collaborative way and obtaining consent is not possible, then you have to think about, okay, uh, when can we uh, share information with others, the potential victim, the police, uh, other people in the community, in order to make sure that we're protecting them from serious harm. So that's a change, and everybody's going to have to know uh, state by state what their laws say in terms of do they have a positive duty, do they have discretion, and when is that discretion uh, even met? So we use the language of serious, foreseeable, and imminent harm. The statutes in different states and the licensing laws may use slightly different language or considerably different language. Uh, and one of the um, exceptions uh, that I uh, would bring up is the state of New Hampshire. Uh, I was presenting there and we were talking about uh, imminent harm to the client or others and somebody said, well, what about 
property. What about buildings? And I said, well, you know, I don't know of any uh, legal responsibility to protect buildings from imminent harm. Well, we looked in uh, their state laws and it was actually built into their state laws. So I think that's one of the things that we have to, you know, be aware of is that there's different legal duties and that affects also what our ethical responsibilities are. And you'd ask, you know, what would be different now than in the past, um, not just in terms of the, the code of ethics, but just in terms of our practices, there are far more social workers who are practicing uh, across borders. And so if you're going to practice across uh, different uh, state lines, you need to know what the laws are, not just the licensing laws, but child protection laws and laws like uh, what are the responsibilities of social workers and mental health professionals when there is serious uh, foreseeable and imminent harm to the clients, others, or even to property. This is a really good point. And we know that you're not, uh, that social workers are, are not allowed to um, practice in other states where they're not licensed. And I know that that's something that has come up a lot with um, online practice. And you bring up a compelling reason why social workers should think twice before saying, eh, it, it'll be fine. Because there are uh, this, this complex tangle of, of laws that, that can vary state by state. And things like, you know, uh, protecting property. Like, it's not something I've ever thought of. But like you said, if it's in New Hampshire and you're practicing in Vermont and you don't know that, then you're not uh, meeting your professional responsibilities to understand the, the laws in that state. Right, right. Having, having moved to Florida, Florida is sort of an oddball state to, compared to some of the others. For instance, uh, the uh, courts here have decided the opposite of Tarasov. Um, the courts here, uh, there's still a notion of illegitimacy uh, of children for uh, some purposes. And if a child is born out of wedlock, then the father um, is not required to be contacted to uh, for consent if there's going to be an adoption. So, you know, how would you know that unless, uh, you know, you really studied the laws in those particular states? I did want to clarify something that you said about uh, social workers not being allowed to practice across state lines. So there's a big, it depends. So we're not allowed to um, practice across state lines in terms of types of services that require licensure but we can practice across state lines if there is no requirement uh, for licensure or no restricted practice. So lots of macro practice uh, goes across state lines and uh, there's no requirement for licensure in each and every state that you are practicing. Um, you could provide coaching services, you could provide counseling that doesn't amount to uh, therapy, you could do um, basic uh, psychosocial assessments, but you could not do diagnoses. If you look at 1.04e, that's one of the additions, um, you need to know the laws of the jurisdiction in which uh, you are present and also the laws of the jurisdiction where the client is located. Hey there, podcast listeners. It's me again. Did you enjoy it? Good. Well, if you haven't already listened to part one, please do that. And don't forget to listen to part three. Part one is an overview and history of the NASW Code of Ethics and a discussion of Section 1.03i, searching for the web for information about your clients. In Part 3, Episode 115, Alan and I talk about Section 1.06g, professional affiliations and the removal of the word disability. 
We talk about 1.15, which is disruptions in electronic communications, and we end part three with a discussion of resources for folks who want to learn more about the NASW Code of Ethics and ethical issues in social work practice. All right, I'm done. I'm Jonathan Singer, and thanks for being with me today for another episode of the Social Work Podcast. If you missed an episode or have suggestions for future episodes, please visit socialworkpodcast.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit our online store at cafepress.com slash swpodcast. To all the social workers out there, keep up the good work. We'll see you next time at the Social Work Podcast. Thank you.